Hi again, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Property Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajimam, again. Awesome to have you back with us today. Thanks for tuning in. We got an extra special episode lined up for you today. January is the time of year when the world's biggest real estate firms and global economy experts publish their annual summaries and projections for the new year, which means it's also time for us here in Japan to take stock, evaluate past and current market trends, review last year's predictions and see if they've held up, and most importantly, put together an investment strategy for the new year in an effort to stay ahead of the crowd in our deal evaluation, to identify opportunities lying ahead, and generally speaking, to make a game plan for what and how we're going to be positioning ourselves in the year and years to come. Now, this year's data comes from the usual suspects, the same ones we turn to every year for exactly this purpose. And these are, first and foremost, PricewaterhouseCoopers and the Urban Land Institute's excellent annual publication, which is called Emerging Trends in Real Estate, the Asia-Pacific Edition, from CBRE's annual summary and projections, from Mitsui Fudosan's comprehensive collection of Japan real estate statistics and charts, and also from Nomura Research Institute's annual analysis pieces, plus, of course, our own experiences and impressions here at NTI as we collect data to try and draw conclusions for the benefit of our clients and our own portfolios, of course, day in, day out throughout the entire year. So our illustrious sales and marketing manager, Pretty Donnelly, whom you all probably remember from her interview here last month, has spent quite a few sleepless nights collecting, analyzing, and collating this data for us. And you're now going to hear the highlights of that work. So first thing first, in order for us to understand how the world views investment in Japan at this time, we should probably look at the macro level first, which is how do investors view the global real estate arena overall, looking at both the past year and the coming one? Well, the main view globally seems to have come to terms with the fact that capital gains simply cannot be relied upon as a rule, or at least not to the extent that they have been until the last decade or so. This means that all the traditional real estate market cycles that agents and economists used to love mentioning time and time again, uh, that used to assume that there's always going to be about seven years of smaller or larger gains, followed by seven years of flatlining or in some rare occasions, slight drops, then back to price hikes again, rinse, repeat, etc., which meant generally that in the long run, investors could count on the idiom that real estate always goes up. This assumption simply does not hold anymore. Market volatility all over the globe has pretty much shattered that paradigm to smithereens. And as investors finally come to term with the new unstable reality, um, the focus has officially shifted now to maximizing annual returns instead, meaning creating the highest possible reliable cash flow rather than banking on growth, which may or may not occur. What this translates into practically is that investors are now far more willing to venture outside their collective backyards and familiar property markets at home, and that more and more of them, particularly those based in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and North America, are fixing their sights on Asia, where much of the world's capital is now centered anyway. The search for better yields has also directed a lot of this capital towards asset classes that were considered more alternative or adventurous until the last couple of years, Stuff that we've mentioned here in the past, like data centers, shared office spaces, student accommodation, affordable share housing, business parks, self-storage facilities, resorts, etc. 
Now, Japan naturally is drawing a lot of attention in this region, simply because of all the countries in the Asia-Pacific region, it's actually the only one that still hasn't imposed any restrictions on foreign property ownership. And in a market that's completely freehold, not including a handful of historical areas or properties within them. Not only that, but Japan transactions are also always fully documented. The business environment is fully investor-oriented in the sense that the regime is stable, legal recourse is a given, rental yield is relatively high, barring some overheated spots like central Tokyo, Osaka, and so forth. Now, this high demand doesn't necessarily mean that there are enough deals out there to supply it. In fact, plenty of local asset owners are sitting tight, holding onto their assets, and not really in any rush to sell, mainly due to a lack of better deals to invest their funds in. But the demand is certainly there. European and North American institutional investors uh, have continued to buy heavily into the country in 2018, with the U.S. specifically investing over $4.2 billion in Japan in 2018 and not showing any signs of cooling interest. China as well is looking set to increase their investments here this year uh, as they direct commercial investments and companies away from the U.S. in light of the trade wars and all the political grandstanding that's currently raging between the two countries. And the fact that prices have stopped rising in Japan is actually a boon in this respect because Yields aren't being compressed as they have been up until 2017 or so. So on that prices front, things have been basically stagnant throughout the country. Just slight increases in Tokyo and Osaka. And this is likely to remain the case until 2020 at least, according to JREI, Japan's Real Estate Institute, which forecasts only slight price hikes until then, and only in larger condo blocks of three floors and upwards, reinforced concrete, or maybe some of the larger steel frame buildings, certainly no price hikes anticipated in anything smaller and older than that. As we've mentioned here in past episodes, Tokyo prices specifically are now almost at their 1990s pre-bubble peak, which puts a psychological damper on the potential for further hikes. And that continues to push capital to other parts of the country, cities like Osaka, Yokohama, Fukuoka, and Nagoya. How about rents? Well, commercial rents on the industrial and retail front are stagnant or dropping, including super central spots in central Tokyo itself. But office and residential rents, which are the big surprise of 2018, have actually gone up. 3 to 7% in Tokyo, which was supposed to remain flat in 2018, according to last year's projections. And rents are now forecast to rise another 3% or so next year in Tokyo, over 4% in Nagoya and up to 7, 8, 9, 10, or even 11% in Fukuoka, Sapporo, and Osaka. This is mainly because, for one, wages have gone up, finally, and even with all the new developments going on all over the country, occupancy is very, very high. As smaller towns continue to die out with the population decline, and more and more of those towns' residents continue to move into the bigger cities. Now, this isn't the case only for residential and office tenants, but for hotels as well. As inbound tourism continues to rise, Tokyo hotel occupancy is already at 80% on average, and this is before the 2019 Rugby Cup and the 2020 Olympics. The rest of the country hotels are on 70% occupancy on average, and there reportedly are only going to be about 6,000 new hotel rooms entering the market this year. So vacancies are not likely to increase much. 
The more traditional inns and resorts, though, are not doing nearly as well, under 50% occupancy on average throughout the year. And that is most likely due to both the seasonal aspect of some of the more rural of these properties, but also because, unfortunately, they're still severely lacking in their ability to cater to foreign visitors, something that savvy investors like Odyssey Capital, whose president we've interviewed here a couple of episodes already, and even smaller companies like ourselves and our clients are quick to capitalize on by aiming to provide a more internationally aware service in some of these smaller rural guest houses, uh, yokans, traditional Japanese inns, and so forth. So as far as the hotel market is concerned, Tokyo itself is probably already, already peaking and a little bit too hot for comfort, but the rest of the country's hospitality segment is still highlighted as very good investment potential with increasingly healthy returns, particularly with the up-and-coming casino legislation, which is going to send the number of tourists to even higher historical peaks. Nagoya, next big town on our list, already one of Japan's main industrial and commercial hubs, and now getting to be first to participate in the rollout of the brand new super speed bullet train infrastructure, the Maglev Floating Magnetic Train. Sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, but it's true. And Nagoya is also doing phenomenally well, over 75% occupancy for office properties, general occupancy, the highest they've been uh, since 1993 or so, and grade A office space, in particular, the highest it's ever been in Nagoya, 99.4% occupancy on average for grade A office spaces. Now, there are going to be a lot of existing office tenants who are going to relocate in 2019 as well, since the older properties along that new train line are scheduled to be demolished, and that's probably going to bring rents for offices up another 25 3% or so, according to CBRE at least, and occupancy even higher. Now, this lack of vacancies and available assets for purchase, along with the increased focus on higher yields, is also leading investors to become more and more creative. And many of them are now tearing down or converting older buildings into newer, fancier, higher yielding type constructions. So we're seeing C-grade blocks in suburban locations being converted into B-grade buildings, we're seeing shoddy old hotels converted into share houses, especially in the universities, and traditional office blocks being converted into shared office spaces, that sort of creative uh, creative uh, investing. Now, another thing we discussed here in last year's summary is e-commerce. So this particular market segment continues to be red hot. More developers and operators are now adopting the strategy, which was considered experimental, if you'll recall, just last year, of cleaning up chemically contaminated land near the largest cities, as well as moving from large-scale distribution and shipping centers, which used to be on the outskirts of the cities, now moving into smaller central city facilities that are built to suit a particular purpose. Now, this last strategy only works for businesses that plan to be around for some time, obviously, and a lot of them are feeling more than confident that this will be the case. In fact, it's widely believed that even an economic downturn or mild recession isn't likely to reduce the appetite for online shopping, considering how quickly these online services are expended. So investment in logistics facilities is still considered to be very reliable, very stable, actually to the point where many developers are now more than happy to build these types of facilities, even without any pre-commitment to leases from potential tenants. They simply know that they will most definitely be able to easily rent them out once they're built. So who's not doing that great? 
Well, as we've mentioned at the start of this episode, the biggest loser in this market is the traditional brick-and-mortar retail sector shops. So exactly what everyone was predicting last year in this regard is actually taking place. Major brands are focusing on only the most high-end streets like Ginza or Omotesando in Tokyo, and the less central shopping centers and malls are being abandoned by the wayside as a result, simply because they're seen as risky prospects in a nation that's obsessed with online shopping. Salaries, as we've mentioned, and tourist numbers have grown, for sure, but they're just not enough to save the sector. And with the hiking consumption tax also scheduled later this year, things are looking pretty shaky for brick-and-mortar shops, except, again, basic necessities that simply are not popular in online shops, like fresh foods, dried goods, and other edibles. The only other sector probably worth mentioning here is assisted living for seniors. With Japan's rapidly aging population, these long-term accommodation for the elderly are also doing extremely well. And again, this is forecasted to continue to be the case in coming years as well. Okay, so that's it from us for today. Hopefully it gives you a pretty thorough picture of what's happened last year and maybe a clue as to what's going to happen this year in Japan's property market. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please do feel free to share it with your network. You never know who might find this content interesting or helpful. We'd love to hear your comments, questions, ideas in the comments section or wherever you may have found this episode. And most importantly, please, please, and one more, please do take a moment of your time to rate and review this podcast in the iTunes store or the podcast app on iTunes on your uh, Apple devices. We know that you're downloading it. We see the numbers, but we're just not getting enough ratings and reviews. So it's getting difficult for us to reach more and more people who may benefit from what we're discussing here. So please do share the love with a rating or a review. Even if you don't like the podcast, let us know. And until next time, from all of us here at MTI, we wish you a fantastic and profitable 2019. And as always, happy investing.